Father, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for friends that we can join together with, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, and think about the issues of our lives. Tonight, as we talk about marriage and want to understand your word, uh, understand what your intention for marriage is, so that we might set proper goals and have a right way of thinking about what this is and uh, what the goals are. Help us that are married to pursue that with diligence and earnestness and those who are not yet married to think deeply and prepare for that day when you will uh, open up that opportunity for them. So, Father, we commit this to you now and ask your blessings on our evening in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to keep on tonight with just some random uh, things to set the table to think about marriage in the bigger sense. Think of this as the flyover, the aerial view. Uh, I want us to be sure we're also, I'm going to change metaphors here. Uh, let's go the other direction. I also want to think about foundational issues. How, what's at the bottom? What's at, what is going to support marriage? And it's always what we talked about this morning in the sermon it, are our ideas, what we think about something, the images we have of something lead us to start shaping our lives. So by the way, that's one of the things we do in worship. With Every, every church has a, has a liturgy, a form, whether it's formal or informal, there's still a form. We meet at a certain time, we meet on Sundays, we sing this many hymns, we have a sermon, we pray, we do these things, we typically do them in a certain order. Uh, some are more formal than others, but the idea of the word form and formal is <clears throat> the idea of forming us, shaping us. We have an image of something, and unless we've thought outside of that image, that image tends to shape us and in, in, into how we live. Uh, and the more we think about it, the more likely it is that we're going to walk out the doors and do those things at our house. Um, <clears throat> that's the goal anyway. And our society and world is full of those things, again, whether we're cognizant of it or not. So for good or for ill, your parents and their marriage, along with lots of other marriages that you've seen from a distance or up close, have shaped your view of marriage have helped you think about what a husband is or should be or a wife, <clears throat> a couple. And that might be good. It might be awful. It might be that you've seen some really bad examples. Uh, by the way, this is why it's so important for your marriage as Christians to be a good example for your children so they don't have to spend a whole bunch of time unlearning. Uh, you can start out with them having a great image, a great example of what a marriage should be. And of course, we have the great example of Christ and the church. Christ as the groom, the perfect groom. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm a little all of a sudden raspy here. Somebody made me talk all afternoon. That was Ben and Rachel. But we'll just be casual here. So <clears throat> let me, uh, let's talk about that a little bit further. I'm going to read a quote here. One of the books I recommended to, to you is The Bed, uh, Bed and Board by Robert Capon. He says, Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. That's a quote from Hebrews. It's a very great sacrament indeed. And for all its troubles, its stock shows not the least sign of going down. 
and the family, uh, by the way, he wrote this in 1969, I believe, uh, and the family, who, who, could, uh, who can praise it as, it as he should? Children like arrows in the hand of a giant, happy is the man whose quiver is full. These are all quotes from the Bible. Whose wife is like a fruitful vine upon the walls of his house, whose children are like olive branches around about his table, with sons like young plants and daughters like polished corners. He beholds how good and joyful a thing it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Bear with me here. But be honest, the precious oil on Aaron's beard doesn't often reach the skirts of our clothing. It's hard to make a home. It's hard for one man and one woman to live together under one roof for as long as God wills. It's hard to raise a family, hard to manage the intractable results of bed and board without doing irreparable damage to somebody. And since it is nearly impossible to write about it without becoming clinical, pompous, or gloomy, most of the published accounts of the matter are either depressing or dishonest, gray truth or rosy lie, but nothing very lifelike. It's hard to identify oneself with most marriage literature. Among the stern realities of religion, amid the triumphs of togetherness and the success of sexual engineering, poor common garden uh, humanity goes dumbly like a lost little peasant among grand personages. The clumsiness of his bed and the gibbering idiocy of his board bear little resemblance to these gray eminences and disgustingly healthy specimens. And so he wanders off back to his house, convinced not that he's unique, which he is, but that he is different, which he is not, and that he has somehow missed the boat or the party or whatever it was, he can't quite recall now, that it was supposed to be all about. All he remembers is that it seemed like a good idea at the time. And so let me just translate that. He said, sometimes when we talk about marriage and we have this beautiful image and picture of what a marriage should be, it can be depressing because it doesn't seem very real. We go home and our marriages and our homes aren't quite like that. <clears throat> we just had a quarrel or we're, uh, we're exhausted or somebody's uh, screaming uh, at their brother or uh, the trash needs taken out, something. So there are all kinds, in other words, what we read about and what we see sometimes is way up here, uh, and, and, and we're down here, and so we might want to be tempted, we might be tempted to give up or think, well, that, that just, I'm unique, and I can't do that. But remember, what God's giving us is what ought to be. He's setting before us an image, a goal. Remember, think about just Jesus himself. Anybody live up to that standard? And yet, God's told us that he's conforming us to the image of Christ. That Jesus is up here, and I'm way down here. And if I'm not careful, I can decide, well, I can never be Jesus, so I'll just quit. I'll just give up. I won't really make an effort because I don't feel like I'm making a lot of progress here. And yet, the Bible says that he that began a good work in you will complete it. So oftentimes, the work is going on, and we don't see it. And I'm saying all this to say we're all in this together. All of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us fall short of the ideal because we're all sinners. 
but we also are all in the process of becoming more like Christ. And therefore, if we're self-consciously learning God's word and setting this glorious image in front of ourselves, that's what's going to move us in the right direction because we're always moving. We're either moving in the right direction or the wrong direction. We're almost never standing still. So in time, we tend to become just like, for example, we become like our friends who we hang out with. That's one of the reasons we want to hang out with people at church. Hopefully, is collectively, there's enough there. We're all marching to Zion together. Uh, so when we get tired and somebody's uh, being, as they said in the Boy Scout, who's the cow's tail, uh, who's at the back, come on, come on, hurry up. Let's stick together. We don't want to get separated here. We need each other to move forward. We have the beautiful biblical image of marriage and family, but then there's the reality of your home. Uh, But again, we should remember that everything in a fallen world, at least everything that's worth anything, is harder than we thought it would be. Um, most, Most of the really valuable things in my life if I'd have known how hard they were, I might not have done them. Uh, like having kids or getting married or going to college or learning a trade or all kinds of things that are just really hard. Uh, <clears throat> so, again, what I want to know is which direction are you headed? I'd rather you be here and headed this way than here and headed this way. I want to know which direction you're moving Are you doing the hard work of building which involves knowledge? Hopefully that's part of the reason you're here is I want to know things. I want to think about things I hadn't thought about before. I want to be stirred in my imagination and thinking. Or perhaps uh, you need practice um, and and so forth. Or uh, obviously more skill at certain things. So that's what practice and knowledge together eventually produce is you get good at things. So we want to develop habits that produce better and better results. Or are you in the process of deconstruction and demolition, perhaps by mere neglect, if not outright demolition? Uh, If you take a house and people move out of it and it sits there for a month or two, Eh, probably not too much goes wrong, but if you leave that house sitting there for two years and do nothing and come back, you'll be amazed at how much it has degraded. Mold has grown and, you know, all kinds of things begin to happen to it. Boards start to rot. And so a neglected marriage or a neglected life will ultimately lead to destruction. How often do cynical older people look at the young idealistic couple and think, just wait, just give it some time. But the same is true with with children and a thousand other things because you see, bitterness accumulates and the Bible says it defiles many. So we, we have offenses build up and we don't know how to forgive each other and we don't know how to correct those things. We don't know how to pray together. We don't know how to, we haven't done, we've neglected the things that would overcome that. And so what moves in in its place is an accumulated, um, accumulation of grudges and scorekeeping and bitterness. And in time, that just starts producing a different kind of fruit that goes from bad to worse. Some of you are here for this class because you're about to start or you're just getting started, 
and you want to lay a solid foundation. You're full of big ideas, hopes, expectations, um, or perhaps you desire uh, your desire and passion still override all the challenges so far. <clears throat> Others might be here because you need some encouragement to press on, or you've learned that you can never stop learning and that we can all stand to be reminded of the things we know. You've been married for a while and you need to be have the pot stirred a bit and uh, remember. We really like each other, but we're tempted to grow weary in well-doing. Um, we need another fresh start, a boost, some more sanctification. And finally, there might be some who are struggling, limping, or dragging in their marriage. The foundation is cracked, and the roof's leaking, and the dishes and the laundry have piled up. But it is never too late for a conversion. The Holy Spirit is still powerful to transform. So whatever category you're in, or maybe a combination, or maybe one I didn't mention, we all are here together to encourage one another. <clears throat> so, back to the issue of foundation. So, last time I said marriage is a communion of love. Another way to say it is a community of love. The Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, were an eternal communion of love. They came together and created the world to be an extension of that community. He told Adam and Eve, the two of you become one flesh, and then you be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with more images of God. Let's broaden the community. Let's build a city. Let's build the world and fill it with this communion of love. Here's what you need to do. Well, here's what you need to not do. Don't eat of that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You, you follow what I say, and it'll all be paradise. It'll be a great communion of love. At some point, fairly soon, Adam and Eve decided they wanted to be in charge. They wanted to do it their way. They, didn't, they thought maybe God just didn't want them to be like him, so they decided they could do a better job than him. And so paradise was a paradise, a place of yes, except for one no. All of a sudden, that was the one thing they wanted. But in getting that, they got exactly what they asked for. They were in charge. They would decide what was good for them and what wasn't, what's good and what's evil. And we've seen, here we are. <laughs> this is what happens. The gospel is what calls us back to that. That's why I said today in the sermon, it starts with us bowing the knee and saying, not my will, but your will. Not my word, but your word. Lord, tell me how I need to be looking at things, in this case, marriage, so that we can restore that original purpose for us to be a communion of love. <clears throat> so everything, uh, every attitude, everything we do or say either contributes to this communion of love or else it undermines it. Everything. Taking out the trash, doing the chores, taking care of the kids, paying the bills, making love, uh, going on vacation, worshiping, just name it. Whatever it is we do, it's either helping that communion, that community, or it's tearing it apart. It's one of the two. So all of us from time to time realize, we, oh, I'm getting too busy with my work. 
and now I'm neglecting something over here. So that balancing act is something that's difficult, and, and we need each other to remind us, uh, honey, I think you're working too hard over here. We've got some other things we need to do. And instead of getting mad and pushing back and having a big quarrel about that, we learn if, we, if we're a team, if we're really working together, we listen to one another, and that helps us stay balanced and on track. Um, <clears throat> So, um, when we commit to be followers of Christ, it's not just some vague sentimental experience, but rather a promise to learn from him and follow him, to believe him, and to do what he says. So, I said last week, I'll say it again, and remind especially those of you who are not married yet, uh, if you're a gal looking for a husband, if you're a guy looking for a wife, you need to remember three things. She, she or he needs to love God. No question about it. Not like, I think so, I hope so, I'm pretty sure. Uh-uh. Absolutely. No question about it. This guy loves Jesus Christ. It shows in so many ways. Second, he or she must be kind. That means they're self-sacrificing. That means they put others ahead of themselves. That's what love is, right? That means they, they're kind to old people and young people and to people they don't even like that much. Um, uh, <coughs> their, that kindness is a summary word that covers a whole lot of territory. This is not and what's kind of the opposite of being selfish and grasping and prideful. Part of being uh, kind is being humble, for example. And then diligent or hardworking. Why? Why do you need a husband or wife that's hardworking? Because this is hard work. All, everything about it is hard work. Now, there's a pleasure that comes from hard work, right? There's a pleasure that comes from playing a game and a pleasure that comes from dessert and a pleasure that comes on a vacation. But there's a pleasure that comes from hard work. And I want all the pleasures. And, and together, by serving one another in diligence, working hard, being faithful, keeping our word, uh, we provide for each other, we protect one another, we develop a good reputation in the community and at our jobs. We could go on and on, take that word diligent and, and just fill it all out. But those three, those three things, just loves God, kind and diligent. If you meet a guy or a gal and they're clearly not one of those, you're done. Walk away. Why would you, why would you want to tie yourself to anything less than that? Now, if they are all those things, that doesn't mean you should marry them yet. That means they should, they'll probably be good for somebody. The next question is, will they be good for you? That's a separate romantic kind of question. Uh, but if they're not those three things first for somebody, they're certainly not going to be that for you. Um, so God's word is the absolute truth and the absolute ultimate authority and the standard for our lives, including our marriages. I can guarantee you that wherever something is wrong in your marriage... It is because you or your spouse or both are not doing what God said to do. 
I guarantee you. So the question is, what is it, and where is it, and who is it? Now, this is the opposite of bondage. This is true freedom. 1 John 5, 3-4, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. When is a train the freest? On the tracks or off? You're an engineer. Tell me that question. Huh? Huh? <laughs> well, you're, you know, the other kind of engineer should know how to answer that too, right? It's free on the tracks, but it, you might think, no, wait a minute, those tracks are limiting that train where it can go, right? But if that train wants to get where it needs to be, it better stay on the tracks. The minute it decides it's going to go off the tracks and do its own thing, I don't care what kind of train engineer you are, the other kind of engineer is going to take over immediately, right? Physics. So no matter what stage you're in, waiting for marriage, newly married, happily married, strained marriage, right now you make a commitment to the Lord, the same commitment you made when you said that you wanted to be a Christian. That can be summarized in the phrase, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. What do you want me to do? I'm going to approach every marital problem with an open Bible and an open heart. I'm going to seek to honor the Lord in my marriage by believing Him, <clears throat> obeying Him, and praying to Him. Now, if you sincerely are doing that, then there is every reason to expect your marriage to move in the right direction. And like a lot of things, like building projects or whatever, we're learning that with this repair work here, it takes time. Sometimes it seems that it's moving slow. But is it moving, and which direction is it moving? If I come in here tomorrow and uh, they've got, they put up plastic over here, I'm going to be discouraged. Um, we're, we're going the wrong direction. Okay? Our goal is to get that taken down and for that over there to be put back in order. Now, <clears throat> a lot of what I want to talk about tonight are the roles of husbands and wives. We have so many misconceptions in our culture and many Christian misconceptions. So I want us to look at what the Bible says about the roles of husbands and wives. And in order to do that, we are probably going to have to unlearn some things and let go of some of the stereotypes that are common. Uh, the world loves to pervert and twist Scripture and make them say what they don't say. Uh, to take them out of context. But again, that's what the devil did with Eve. He, he says, did God say that the day you eat you'll die? Did he, did he really say that? And she, Maybe that's not what he meant, right? So you sow some seeds of doubt. <clears throat> so before we look at the distinct duties and responsibilities of husbands and wives, we should start with the joint responsibilities. So there's some certain things for men, certain things for women in the Bible, but there are also some things for men and women that are critical first. So let's look at that to begin with. 
Um, the last time we met, we took a quick look at all the one another passages that apply to husbands and wives. So if you're Christians, whether you're a man or a woman, uh, in this case, let's say we have a Christian man and a Christian woman, uh, before you're married, after you're married, doesn't matter, you're still first brothers and sisters in Christ. And the Bible says that in Christ there is no distinction between male or female. There's not one that's better than the other. They're both equal before God and before Christ. They are both children of God, and they are to treat each other as brother and sister in Christ, as one another's. Um, so we're, um, uh, we are joint heirs, the Bible says, of the grace of life. So here's the preface to Paul's explicit passage regarding the roles of husbands and wives that we're going to look at in a few minutes. That'll be uh, later in Ephesians uh, 5, but earlier, here's what he says. So again, this is right before he's going to specifically say, husbands, love your wives, wives, submit to your husbands. And then he's going to fill that out. We'll look at that in a moment. But here's what he says first. See then that you, and in this case, because we're going to be talking about husbands and wives, I'm going to fill in a little to give some context for us since we're talking about marriage. See then that you husbands and wives walk circumspectly, self-aware, looking at yourself first, not the other person, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. There's all kind of bad stuff going on around us all kind of bad examples, all kind of influences. I want you to walk carefully. Therefore, husbands and wives, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Where are we going to find the will of the Lord? That that hunch that you get in your heart, that quiver in your liver, the Lord led me to be selfish today. No, in Scripture. I, somebody gave me a T-shirt. I think it was Pastor Neil. <clears throat> I forgot I had it. I found it in my drawer last night, and I put it on. Y'all remember what the What Would Jesus Do, the letters? Okay, so it has that, What Would Jesus Do? And underneath it says, quote Leviticus, <laughs> because Jesus quotes Leviticus more than any other book of the Bible. That's usually not the answer people want when they say, What Would Jesus Do? They want you to kind of sit there and figure out well, I wonder what Jesus would do right now, you know. And what they really mean is, what do I want to do and how can I justify what I want to do by thinking maybe Jesus would do this. Um, So, um, uh, let's see where I was. Um, Yeah. So, um, back to the passage. Speaking to one, uh, and do not be drunk with wine. All right, so back up. Therefore, Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Literally, dissipation here means don't be intoxicated. Sorry about the wine reference here. We got some vintners here. But they would agree, don't be drunk, right? No, don't be intoxicated with wine because that makes you do what? Act like a fool. To be under the influence of alcohol excessively is to make you act like you're the guy with the lampshade on your head, right? At the party. You're the idiot. You say things you shouldn't say because you're, you say, and then later how often somebody in court says, well, I was, I was drunk. 
as though that's an excuse. Well, then don't get drunk because when you get drunk, that's what happens is you, you're out of control. You're under the control, under the influence of the alcohol. And what Paul's saying is he's using this as an illustration. Just like alcohol puts you under a certain kind of influence and makes you a fool, if you want to be wise, be filled instead or be intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. Come under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Let Him direct your mouth and your attitude. Okay? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and make melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God. Imagine if you had a marriage and a family that that was the dominant attitude, a cheerfulness that occasionally broke out in spontaneous song. Um, Now, that can be scary, I know, for some of you. But at least the attitude, right? But imagine a household that was dominated by giving thanks always for all things. That's a game changer, right? Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then here's the phrase I really want to focus on. Remember, leading into the discussion of husbands and wives' particular roles, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So men, if you're married, you need to learn to submit to your wife. Wives, you need to learn to submit to your husband. Why? We're going to talk a little bit about the word Submission. What are the two words there? So let's look at this one first. What's the mission? In this text, what's the mission? Having a family that gives thanks to God always for all things. In to the Father in Jesus Christ. That's the mission. That's the goal. All these other things he mentioned here are the mission. This is the kind of household we want to have. That's the mission. And then he says, what does it mean? What does sub mean? So to come under the mission. I'm here to serve the mission. What's the mission? What can I do to help the mission? How can I contribute to the mission? So submission is not subjugation. We end up here, and if you, you say the word submission today, particularly if you say a wife should submit to her husband, ah, we'll have none, none of that, okay? Well, if that word was subjugation, I would share the outrage. So... It's not what the Bible is talking about. It's not talking about slavery. It's not talking about subjugation. But it is talking about a a certain kind of mission. And and we're going to expand on this a bit. Let's just go ahead and do this. And I'll I'll get lost in my notes because it's in here somewhere, but I'll I'll catch up. Um, What is hierarchy? What What is the concept? What does it mean? 
okay, way to order your life, but if we're talking about a, um, let's say we were talking about a business. Who's in charge? Okay. Is hierarchy inevitable? Is it an, is it a, um, um, an inescapable concept? So if you put five people in a room, they're not a member of anything. Okay. They're just five people in a room. Is a hierarchy eventually going to emerge? Put five children in a room. <laughs> what? Lord of the Flies, right? Uh, there's going to be a hierarchy emerge. Now, it might not. It might emerge smoothly. Maybe everybody quickly assumes their role and their place, and they're happy to do it. There's always the quiet one that's happy to just sit there and be told what to do, and then there's somebody else who likes being in charge. What happens if you get, you know, four of those who want to be in charge? A Booth family reunion. Yeah, there you go. Um, you might have a little conflict, right? Might have a lot of conflict. Could break out an all-out war, okay? Because there's a, a vying for power and control, and it can be certainly sinful, but it doesn't have to be. So hierarchy happens whether you name it or not. And what if we just said, all right, we're going to start a club, we're going to start an organization. Let's 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 be absurd here. We're going to start a business, and we have five people, and but we're going to all be equal. How long is that business going to operate? Probably not very long. Why? Okay, decisions have to get made, right? And, if, and what if everybody is absolutely equal, nobody has the ability to, to insist on anything because we're all equal, then no decisions, or very few decisions can get made. We probably can't even order pizza. So if that hierarchy is not allowed, if we artificially say no hierarchy, so we got a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, and you're absolute equals in every sense of the word. I would like to suggest that's absurd, and we're going to break that apart, and I'll show you why here in a moment. But hierarchy is going to happen. And if it's not defined by someone who knows what's good for us and how to make it work, then it'll just, all it'll be is what? What would happen with the five <clears throat> people that are together? What will, if, if, if nobody's willing to submit, it's going to now be a power struggle, right? And is that what happens in marriages? And what kind of methods are used to gain power? Manipulation. Anybody? Anybody ever manipulated your spouse? Other than me and my wife. <laughs> we all do, right? We all have little different methods. Sometimes we pout. Sometimes we stomp our foot. Sometimes we... There's all kinds of ways we can do this, right? Um... And you know, you know, if you haven't, if you've been married for any length of time at all, and probably even before you get married, you start to figure those patterns out. Okay, because we're always in this bit of a power struggle. <clears throat> and if we just call it what it is, we can recognize it. Maybe we have some hope of fixing it and addressing it. 
But here's something that I found really helpful for me in understanding this thing about male and female, husband and wife, and the different hierarchies that exist. So um, let me back up with some more theology. The Trinity... We have the uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who is, um, is there a hierarchy there? Now the Bible says that they are equal in power and glory. Now, wait a minute. The Bible says Jesus didn't consider equality with God the thing to be grasped, but he was equal to God, right? He's not less than God. Okay, good. So one of, one of the mistakes we often make in life is you need to always ask the question, if I say, are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit equal, your next question should be, in what way? Because there's more than one way that people can be equal or unequal, or persons in this case. These are not separate people. These one person. That's the equal part. The same in substance, equal in power and glory. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. Equal in person, they're, they're the divine being. So in being, by the way, that is called the ontological, that's the fancy theological word, the ontological trinity has reference to the being of God and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal. You and your spouse or your uh, well, you and yeah, your spouse, in this case, since we're talking about marriage, are, we have to divide this further in a moment, but let's just say as human beings, we're all equals. God's no respecter of persons. But you are. You know how I know that? It's because if I ask you right now, Elise, since you're home from college and know so much now. Have you ever met a guy and you thought, I wouldn't marry him if he was the last guy on earth? Yes? Is that because you think you're better than him? To who? To you. She's right. She didn't want to say that because she's a good Christian girl and she's not supposed to think she's better than anybody else, but she does. Now, is she a better being than him? No. He's made in the image of God and she's made in the image of God. So, ontologically, she is no better than him. Economically, that's the other way. That's where we talk about the economic trinity so the Father begets the Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, is 
uh, um, I've lost my word here, flows from, if you will, the Father and the Spirit. They do different things. They have different, it's a division of labor, if you will. A hierarchy of labor. Does that make sense? So in that way, they are not equal. And in that way, husbands and wives are not equal. You have different jobs to do. Now here's where I want to throw a little thing into the mix that I think is really helpful. So if I'm the head of the house, that's my job. I'm at the top. Of, by the way, we're going to see that doesn't mean that I'm the, the king and I have to say, honey, you know, or woman, fetch me my slippers and, you know, bring me my beer and, you know, that kind of thing. That would be, that's, a, that's, a, that's wrong. That's another problem. What that means is if I am the head, then I bear the greatest responsibility. I'm the captain of the ship. If the ship wrecks, I'm responsible, whether I was behind the wheel or not. If I ask her, hey, I'm going to go take a nap, would you steer? And she wrecks the ship, I'm still responsible. That's what it means to be the head. She might be in trouble too. It's not that she doesn't have sins. It's that I'm responsible for her sins, just like in a similar way that I am my own, or my kids. I'm the head. Now, that also means I have the greatest duty and responsibility, which calls on me to make the greatest sacrifice. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So that is what it means to be the head, is to be responsible and have the greatest duty and to be in charge of the mission. What is the mission? Not exactly what this mission was. The mission of marriage is twofold in Genesis, to subdue the earth and to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with godly children. Malachi says God made them one, husband and wife, in order to give him godly children, godly seed. That's my mission. My wife comes along, marries me, the two become one, and she, in submission, joins the mission to help do those two things exercise dominion over the earth, and raise godly children together. Now, here's the the twist. I readily admit, though I hate to do it sometimes, my wife is smarter than me in a lot of things. She's more talented than me in a lot of things. And I look up to her. All the great men I know look up to their wives. God thought I needed a helper. He didn't think I could do it on my own. I was insufficient to to accomplish the mission. For one thing, I can't have children by myself. But I can't do any of the rest of it by myself very well. Some, Some people are given a gift at not being married. That's a different subject for another night. But for those who aren't given the gift of celibacy, God says, you know what? You need a lot of help. I got somebody for you. And that means you have deficits, men. And God gave you this amazing gift, your wife, to fill in that gap. Now, is that ever aggravating? 
or to have somebody who's better at something than you are pointing that out? Here, honey, let me do that for you. You're going to mess it up again. No, you better turn left now. I need a navigator, for example. So my wife is a superior person in many ways. Not in every way. Not economically. I'm the head of the house. I'm the husband. I'm going to give an account to God first and foremost. And she is called to be in submission to me in that relation, in that role. But in other ways, since I'm to submit myself to her also, where she's superior, I'm to recognize God's gift of my wife and say thank you. Thank you for giving me somebody to help me not be foolish. Does that make sense? Now, I hate that I'm about to give this illustration. I've been giving it for 30 years, and unfortunately, every now and then, God actually reminds me of it in a very specific and personal way that really hurts. Um, And so I have a confession here. I got a speeding ticket last week. And I was just foolish. I was wrong. Uh, Driving too fast. And the policeman pulled me over. Really nice policeman. And he, this is, I really, I confess this to you because he goes, Sir, uh, you know, where do you work? Uh, I'm a pastor. Which church? I told him, Oh, yeah, I know that church. He said, uh, I really don't want to give you a ticket, but I have to because it's on video and you were going too fast. Not just like a little bit too fast. I said, okay, you know, no excuses. So he wrote me a ticket. Now here's, the, here's my illustration. I would have used this if I hadn't gotten a ticket, but that just made it all the more real. I have an obligation to submit to him. I'm older than him. I might be. I don't know him. I might be smarter than him in any number of areas. I might have talents he doesn't have. I might be a better husband than he is and a better father than he is. I might. There might be all kind of maybes there. But when it comes to that area of traffic laws, he's the boss. He's in charge of me. I have to submit to him. And so, economically, he is my superior. Now, once he takes his uniform off and we're hanging out you know, somewhere else, that relationship may not be in, in force at that moment. But when he's in uniform and in his police car and he turns those lights on, I better pull over quick. Because he has authority over me. You see the difference in, in being equal in one way but not equal in another? And so in the, in the marriage, we're going to see there is a hierarchy that God made, but it's not, we have to think outside some of the stereotypes that have developed. Because God is the boss of both of us, husband and wife. And uh, as we're going to see, when we do what God says to do in our various roles, blessings start to come to everybody. 
So the Bible, by the way, opens and closes with a wedding. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar in literature, Sarah. What is? Can you tell me the difference between a comedy and a tragedy? I put her on the spot here. One is what? The second one was what? I still couldn't hear you. Yes. Thank you, Sam. See? Good to have a partner, isn't it? Uh, Basically, one ends in a marriage, one ends in a funeral. A happy ending or a sad ending. Tragedy, comedy. Uh, So comedy doesn't necessarily mean ha-ha. It just means good. It means a happy thing. The Bible uh, begins with a wedding, but then shortly after that, there's a funeral. What's the funeral in Genesis? The day you shall eat, you shall surely die. So we have a, a wedding. The two become one flesh, Adam and Eve. We have a funeral, the death of Adam and Eve. In the book of Revelation, we have what? The wedding feast of the Lamb the eternal wedding of Christ and his people, the church, the bride of Christ. And we have an eternal funeral, the lake of fire, eternal death. We have both stories. Which story are you in? And which story does your marriage represent? Is it going to end in a funeral? Or does it end in that happily ever after kind of picture of love and communion and community? So marriage was created and sanctioned by God himself as the primary and critical institution of mankind. Uh, Again, Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. As it has, as it has, excuse me. Okay, everything, sin affected everything. It affects everything it touches. And so, uh, as, and as a result, sin defaced the beauty of marriage, but the gospel is designed to restore its loveliness. But if we leave Christ out, and he's, he's in the background, well, yeah, we go to church, yeah, we're Christians, yeah, we think we're going to heaven, but Jesus never enters the daily life of your marriage, your family. He's in the background, way in the background. It's like... The, the Bible that just lives on the shelf at your house. Do you have a Bible? Yeah, I got a Bible. You ever open it? (laughs) You ever read it? No, but I have one. Uh, Having one is not enough. And so the same thing is true in your marriage. Christ has to be in your marriage, present, speaking into your marriage for it to make a difference. So this section of Ephesians is probably the premier passage on the subject of marriage in the Bible uh, where it begins to talk about husbands and wives. It's been read, I read it pretty much at every wedding ceremony, and it offers both theological foundation as well as many practical applications of Christian marriage. This is our starting place and our resting place when it comes to this issue, and it's where we turn to get our answers. One man, one woman, joined together in a communion of love, representing Christ and his church. Don't let that slide in one ear and out the other. That really needs to take up uh, some, some uh, geography in your thinking. 
Um, the Christian view of marriage is governed entirely by the teaching of Scripture, both Old and New Testaments. Uh, and again, we said this this morning, if the Bible's not true, if it's not authoritative, then we're left to just make it up and to be whatever we like. We see that all around us in regard to marriage. It becomes a human invention and convention. It's a wax nose to be shaped and fit to accommodate any and every point of view. Marriage is whatever you want it to be. Uh, whole identity politics is like that. How do you identify? Then that's what you are. You just make it up. In other words, our current cultural view uh, that, that's well on its way down the proverbial slippery slope. If marriage means everything, then it means what? Nothing. So there's no higher universal authority to speak on the subject than God. If God did not invent marriage and doesn't define its terms, then we're left with our own autonomy, that means self-law, to make of it whatever we wish, and it can easily change or morph along the evolutionary journey to nowhere. In that case, there are no boundaries, and it may be, not, and, and it may be done away with altogether. So which is it for you? Joyful submission to the true and faithful and authoritative word of God or the borderless imaginations of men and women who will determine good and evil for themselves. Those are the two basic alternatives. Now, there are many false ideas and expectations regarding marriage. Um, remember, Francis Schaeffer observed, most people get their worldviews the same way they get the measles. I guess we'd say the way you get covid this includes many in the church. C.S. Lewis commented on this. He said, Be sure you're not making your judgments based on the ideas you've derived from novels and films. This is not so easy to do as people think. Our experience is colored through and through by books and plays and the cinema, and it takes patience and skill to disentangle the things we have uh, really learned from life for ourselves. People get the idea that if you're married, if you uh, if you have married the so-called right person, you may expect that the feelings of being in love will go on forever. How many of you are familiar with the Abbott brothers? A few of you. Uh, they captured this common problem in their song, "Love Like the Movies." Um, here's the lyrics. So you want to be in love like the movies, but in the movies, they're not in love at all. And with the twinkle in their eye, they're just saying their lines. So we can't be in love like the movies. Now in the movies, they make it look so perfect. And in the background, they're always playing the right song. And in the ending, there's always a resolution. But real life is more than just two hours long. I don't want to be in love like the movies. Because in the movies... They're not in love at all. With a twinkle in their eyes, they're just saying their lines, so we can't be in love like the movies. So with these and other false notions, the result is that when people find that they've lost that initial feeling, uh, they think this proves that they've made a mistake and that they're entitled to a change. In this area of life, as in every other, thrills come at the beginning they don't always last or stay exactly the same. They morph. 
New things feel different than familiar things. Perhaps the dying away of the first thrill will be compensated for by a quieter, more lasting kind of interest and even greater thrills all the time. Some years ago, and I'll end our first break here with this, I saw it on one of these morning news shows um, in college somewhere, did an experiment. They took a young man. Let's say they took Will Alders because he's still just wet behind the ears when it comes to marriage in a happy, good way. And so they had a guy like Will sit at his house on a sofa, and they said, look, we're just doing an experiment. Don't worry about it, but we're going to hook you up, monitor your blood pressure, your pulse rate, and your oxygen levels, whatever. They had three gadgets hooked up to him, set him on the couch, just started chatting with him. And in this case, since Allison's there, I'll use her. Allison walks in, she's in on the deal, and she just sits next to him. Guess what happens? Heart rate goes up a little bit. His blood pressure goes up just a little bit. Why? It's young love. It's exciting. My wife just sat next to me. She put her hand on his leg, went up a little bit more. Then there's me and Mary now. <laughs> they hook me up, and she walks in. She's in on the deal, and my heart rate goes down, and my blood pressure goes down. And she puts her hand on my leg, and I look at her like, what? No. Um, <laughs> mature love looks different than young love. That's kind of, when I, when I thought about that, I thought that's really kind of beautiful. And, and, and they explained that in both cases, these were happy marriages. Why the difference? Things change. Life changes, and it looks a little different, feels a little different. That's normal. But what's not normal, what's not right, is to go from that first picture to now your blood pressure is really going up for the wrong reason because you're, you know, it's it's tense, it's unpleasant, it's stressful. That's that's what you don't want. So uh, um, one other false view we get from the pop culture is that of falling in love is irresistible. Now I'm all for falling in love. In fact, I tell young couples all the time, don't get married if you hadn't fallen in love. And if you don't know what that is, let's talk about that a little bit more. Um, Again, some people think it just happens the way you get a disease. So these irresistible passions are much rarer in real life than in the books and the movies. And that's not to say, again, that we're not in favor of romantic love. Quite the contrary. A mature Christian marriage is full of romance and passion. Nevertheless, this is more a product of biblical marriage than it is the cause. Nancy Piercy Uh, writes about how the structure of biblical marriage actually contributes to and defines and supports the shapes and shapes marriage. And I'll just read this quote. We'll take a break. In the biblical worldview, marriage is not something humans may simply redefine at will. It comes with its own definition as the first community reflecting the community in the Trinity. In a healthy society, young people in the throes of romantic love do not have to decide for themselves how to create a marriage from scratch. Their extended family, the church, the law, the public ethos, all help shape young couples' expectations of what marriage is and what responsibilities it involves. That's how public norms help us have healthier, happier marriages than if we functioned 
as isolated individuals making up our own life script as we go along. In a wedding sermon, theologian uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer told a young couple this, quote, It is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. A commitment to marriage with its norms and obligations keeps husbands and wives, a husband and wife, connected through the ups and downs of their emotional life. With that, let's take about a 10-minute break here. There's some refreshments out in the foyer, and we'll come back. Three basic covenants, okay? Those are the three basic social covenants, relationships we live in. Except, I'm going to back up here and draw this maybe a little differently. Uh, that helps illustrate another point. We'll call this the household, the church, and the state. These spheres of authority overlap. So that's why, for example, when we have a wedding, a new household forming, for Christians, we would do that in the church, or it could be in the park, but the minister comes. Marriage is primarily a household event, not primarily a church event. Why do we invite the church? Well, because we're part of the church. These two individuals are Christians. They're part of the church. So this is part of their extended family. So they invite their family and their church family. And we come together and the minister performs the service. And does the state have an interest in this new household? So if you get married, there's a marriage license and your relationship to the state changes. And that's why if you get a divorce, you got to go down and file legal papers and have a judge hear it and grant that divorce because the state deals with you differently if you're unmarried or if you're married. That has to do with property and visitation rights of children and that kind of thing. So the state of Texas, for some reason, doesn't like to come to everybody's wedding. So what do they do? They authorize the minister to act on their behalf as a witness because he goes to all the weddings. He often performs a service. And so I can say on behalf of the state of Texas and the power invested in me from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, I declare you to be husband and wife. So the state of Texas says, Pastor Booth, We'll take your word for it. Would you sign this marriage license that you perform the ceremony on such and such a date, such and such a time, and we'll take your word for it. And that'll become a legal witness that this wedding took place on this date and this time. Now, sometimes you can just, you know, people skip the church and go straight to the justice of the peace and have the thing done there because they may not be members of the church. But let's say they are, and for whatever reason, they get the justice of the peace to do the wedding. Church still would say, well, tell us about it. We want to recognize that wedding also. There's a, we have common interests, somewhat different interests too. And so what happens sometimes, and we're seeing some of this now, 
where one of these spheres wants to encroach on the others and dominate the others. That's been a historic tension. And so these other spheres have to push back. So even with a church, can, can a church be tyrannical? Could, could the elders start telling you, you know, I, say, I just was going to say this in a row, so we've actually done this. Have we ever told you what color shirt to wear? Actually, we have on Pentecost. We at least recommended you wear red shirts, but it wasn't a command. If we start commanding you what color shirts to wear, you should push back. That's not, that's not our sphere of authority. We can recommend things, but we need to know where we, where we can command things versus where we can recommend things versus where we need to just keep our mouths closed. Can families become authoritarian and, and resist the authority of the church and the state? Yeah. Certainly the state does it. So, <clears throat> but God created all these spheres. There are no authorities that God hasn't created. And so... Um, in each of these, and since I'm running out of time, I'm going to abandon my notes and talk about superiors, inferiors, and equals. We started out asking the question, is hierarchy inevitable? Are there hierarchies in each of these? Yeah, one way or the other, whether you name them or don't name them. Let's talk about the state. Give me an example of some hierarchies in the state. Let's just take the state of Texas. What do we have? Governor, okay, legislature and the judicial branch. What about uh, we could have mayors, right? What? Yeah, okay, a whole bunch of different officials and different layers, maybe the sheriff, but down here at the bottom, citizens. Yeah, well, probably all the way down to citizens. Right? You're, you're at the bottom if you're not an official. But now that's, there's, there's good reason there. And, and different people work for different other people. So, for example, the, chair, the sheriff is the highest, law, uh, the highest authority law enforcement official in the county, over the city, over any other law enforcement in the county. But what happens is, if he's smart, the sheriff doesn't try to take care of all the business in Nacogdoches. The city police do that, and the sheriff is happy for them to do that. And on occasion, they butt heads over who's in charge of this particular thing, jurisdiction. But most of the time, the sheriff is more than happy to say, look, if, if, something, if there's a wreck or if something happens in the city limits, don't call us. We have plenty of things to do. Y'all take care of it. We're happy for you to do that. So there's delegated authority and jurisdiction. And so there's all kind of work that goes on in the law to define who does what, and, and hopefully, when everybody does what they're supposed to do, they actually work together to accomplish the mission, law and order. Are there conflicts? Always. There's sin. There's disagreements. There's somebody trying to overreach. Somebody not doing their job. Wherever somebody fails to do their job or they overreach in their job, trouble begins, right? That's why we have elections. We need to throw the bums out and get some new ones. I don't like the way they did that. So we have different ways of changing this hierarchy. 
But you see, that makes sense, right? And, and by the way, we, it, it's not, I don't think it's technically one of the major spheres that God created, but you can think of a business the same way. Or the military. Any organization does this kind of thing. Church, you've got the pastor, the elders, deacons, church members. Hierarchy, maybe we have presbytery, council on up, broader church. They do different things. So most things are handled in the local church. A few things go up to presbytery. A few other things might go up to council. That's the way that hierarchy works. And the same thing, if everybody does what they're supposed to do. If everybody in the system is godly, it's a beautiful thing. If one person in the system is ungodly, problems begin. And if 10 people are ungodly, it can get messy. And if 100 people, you got an all-out disaster. What about the family? What about marriage? Is there a hierarchy? What happens, so we got the husband, the wife, and the kids. I know, I had somebody, lady, always correct me if I said kids. She said, those are baby goats. Well, my children were more like baby goats. So. Especially, one, especially one of them. Uh, um, they have very hard heads. Um, what happens if the two-year-old sins? In, in the, here we have this beautiful household. It's the picture on a book. Everybody's smiling and happy. And then the two-year-old pitches a fit. What happens to the, to the law and order of the household? We've got a problem. Disrupted. Excuse me a minute. I need to deal with a problem. Johnny, come with me. Okay, so we deal with Johnny or Rachel, as the case may be. (laughs) And we try to correct the problem uh, with some discipline, some authority being applied. Authority is always the ability to inflict pain at some level. Isn't that why you don't tell a joke about having a gun when you're going through security at the airport? When they say, don't do that, you believe them, right? You don't want to spend the night in the pokey. So, two-year-old disrupts the system through sin, throwing a fit, and hopefully mom or dad step in, deal with it, correct it. Hopefully there's repentance, forgiveness, and a restoration of peace. What happens if mom's had a bad day? And she has a meltdown. That never happened, does it, moms? Is it a bigger problem than when the two-year-old does it? What happens if dad has a meltdown? That's right. So here's one thing to remember. If you're the head... You're going to set the overall tone for the system, for any of these systems. That's why we're all in such a 
horrible quandary right now over who's going to be the next president. You know, the choices are limited here. So if dad is sinning, depending on what the sin is, if he's just in a bad mood, that's one thing. If he's committing adultery, or what if he's abusive? What if he's got a foul mouth? What if he's got a heavy hand and he hits people? What if he curses and just goes into a rage? What if he's a drunk? What if he's lazy? What if he abandons the family? What is the dominant feature of that household? whatever dad is. He said, but the wife is godly and the kids don't act that way. They're good. He's bad. Is it still the dominant? Yeah. If he abandons the family, guess who has to step up and be the head? Now the wife has to do it. The mother has to do it. She's filling the void that he left. So she might be doing a great job, by the way, but that's now the dominant feature of that household. What are the kids growing up seeing? A dad that abandons a family and a mom that has to step in and take over. That's now their view of what a family is. So when we step outside and start disobeying God, depending on where we are in the hierarchy, will impact the entire system, the entire family. When it's the one on the bottom, less impact. What if all the kids, you know, go into high rebellion? Now that is a much bigger problem than a two-year-old having a meltdown because he didn't get his nap. See what I'm saying? There's variation here depending on who, what, and when. But it all has to do with sin. It all has to do with disobedience. And it has to do with the positions that we have and as to how much influence we've got. In some systems, in the civil government, we can elect somebody new. Um, in the church, ultimately, if you have somebody who's really, really disruptive, you can excommunicate them. So you can't be a member here anymore. We're not going to let you, in your selfishness, destroy the whole church. Could that happen in a family? What happens when things get so disruptive in a family? Divorce or what? God hates divorce, but sometimes divorce is what's needed, right? Because, because the alternative is worse. It's going to be all-out war or somebody's going to get hurt. Um, it's utterly destructive. How about a, uh, an 18-year-old who comes home drunk and whacks his mother around? Think we need to put him out of the house? Yeah, he needs to be excommunicated. Why? Because you don't get to do that. You're part of this household and you are not only destroying yourself, you're destroying everybody else. So there comes a point uh, and a level of seriousness in any system that there has to be a mechanism of, as the Bible puts it, remove the evil man from among yourselves. Why? Because if you don't, he'll destroy the whole system. Oh, that's why the death penalty existed and still does uh, in severe cases. You don't get to kill people. If you're going to kill people, we're going to hand you over to God. He'll deal with you perfectly justly. That's another discussion for another night, but I'm just illustrating this point, which is 
in this, we all have. So, so what we have to back up and look at now, since we're talking about mar- marriage, is do I as a husband know what God has required of me? It is. Well, here's, let me say why. The government has a lot of influence on me and you, but not as much as parents do over their children. Now, you don't have, you know, I wrote Rachel Andrew and I forgot how many kids y'all have, I forgot. Eight. So they, get, they win. They got eight kids. Okay, you got influence over eight people, or you did. Some of them are married and on their own now. Um, but you have more power. When, when you got a bunch of little kids and you're the parents, you control pretty much everything. Who their friends are, where, where they go to church, what's for dinner, what time they go to bed. You've got complete authority, basically, and power of influence. I, as a pastor, have a lot of influence, but not near as much as parents do. I'm very limited. i got words. I can't even spank you. Well, I'd like to sometimes. Um, Very limited. And the state can arrest you, fine you, put you in jail, or execute you, exile you. It has tools. But it doesn't have as much influence over your daily life as a parent does over a child. So the, the most, you're right, the most powerful position over any other individual or set of individuals is found within the household. The broadest is the state, but it has limitations because of its broadness. If all of a sudden you had 100 children, your influence on each individual child would go down. Why? Because your time is divided. You only have 24 hours in a day, and two kids take 24 hours. So after that, you're just having to parcel up uh, your time and influence. Does that make sense? So to bring this home in our last five minutes here, I'm going to peek at my notes and see if there was anything else that I wanted to mention vital. By the way, the Westminster Confession deals with superiors, inferiors, and equals. By the way, that's not talking about ontological superiors, inferiors, and equals, but economical our positions. Remember, my wife is my superior in many ways, but I hold a superior position as the head of the household. I bear the biggest responsibility, and therefore I have the greatest duty and obligation to those who I'm in charge of, to love them, to seek their good, to do them good, and to not be selfish. Um... So typically, I have a duty to those who are under me and a responsibility to those who are above me. Who is the husband? Who does the husband have a duty toward primarily?
Somebody creating trouble? Is it you? Okay. God is over all the heads of those spheres, the governor or the president or the king, uh, the pastor, the husband or father. So by the way, you're a husband generally, a hus- the husbandman of the vineyard. That's an agricultural image. And you become a father after you're a husband. That's the right order. That's part of being a husband is pro- uh, procreation. Um, but I'm accountable to God primarily. Who's the wife accountable to? Well, she's also accountable to God. And then God says, okay, I want you to submit to your husband who's accountable to me. Children, you're accountable to your father and your mother. And you're accountable to me. And both of them are accountable to God. And so that's the way it works. So I'll I'll just point out, God has commands for husbands and fathers. He has commands for wives, and he has commands for children, but I can't find any place in the Bible where there are commands for mothers. I have a theory as to why that is the case. Fathers beget children in the Bible. Pretty easy thing to do, except it's a hard thing to take responsibility for. That's why fathers who abandon their children, I think, are really bad. You bring them into the world. And in the Bible, the wife gives children to her husband. Why? Because he is primarily responsible. She is his helper. Together, they're raising godly children. Now, so in other words, there's no direct commands to mothers. The direct commands, fathers, train up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's the command. Wives, submit to your husbands. Help your husbands accomplish that mission. Children, obey your father and your mother. From the children's point of view, father and mother are one. There's no difference. Everything your father said to do and your mother said to do, you do it. That's your only job, is to honor and obey your father and your mother so that you'll live a long time on the earth. It's the only commandment with a promise. So from their perspective, they're one and the same. And, and husbands, that's why you, you teach your children. You backtalk your mother, you disobey your mother, it's worse than if you did it to me. Keep that in mind when I'm not here. Yeah. 
Well, kids are smart. They'll figure out how to work that system. So we're out of time tonight, but when we get to the section where we're just talking about kids, we'll talk more about how that looks because there inevitably are disagreements between the husband and the wife about child raising. There's a right way and a wrong way to handle that, and a smart man will listen off to his wife's counsel and wisdom and, and work together instead of being in some kind of competition uh, and becoming opponents of one another. All right, any questions or comments? Uh, you know, it's like all these things. I'm giving you the flyover, like I said, big picture. But I wanted you to understand some of the concepts of what's important for us to see and to find ourselves in these images of what this is about as far as hierarchy, as far as the social systems, the covenant. Um, and so in one sense, it's really simple. Here's a covenant. God says, you're in this family, you're in this church, you're in this civil society, here's how it works. You do this, you submit to this person, you, you do these other things, and if you do, there will be blessings. And if you don't, there's going to be trouble. It's that simple. It's not easy to execute. It's hard at any given moment. But if I understand that, just like when I earlier said, remember you want to marry somebody that's godly, kind, and diligent, it's easy to remember those three things. There's a lot more to be said about each of them, and there's a lot more to be said about these things. But you, if you can get that in your head, that image of what's going on and why, and actually, I guess the thing I want to really emphasize, it's hard to think of any sphere of life outside of these, a school, a business, a club, it's hard to think of any human sphere where this doesn't happen either by default or by plan because it's, how, it's just how God made the world. It's the tracks the train runs on, and when we try to do it some other way, it always ends up in a mess. And so the sooner we get with doing things the way they were intended to be, it starts to work and run smoother. So um, any other, any questions or comments on any of this? Or, and I want to remind you, you can send me questions, email me, write them on a card, whatever that you want dealt with somewhere in the near future. These are being recorded and put up on our website. Uh, the one from last week or two weeks ago, if you missed it, it's up. I think we missed the first three minutes due to a technical difficulty, but the rest of it's there. All right. Will, would you pray for us? Sure. Father, we thank you for uh, this evening that we can gather here, uh, married and unmarried, to learn more about uh, this meaning of marriage. Lord, we thank you that it's something that you have blessed and you have given to us. Uh, Lord, it is a wonderful gift when we choose to put you um, at the center of it. Father, we pray that you would
Amen. Well, good night.